0: Well, it's great to be here, um, blessed to be able to come up here and uh, just see what the Lord's doing here, see where Tate is, and we, we came up to Monterey for the first time on spring break, and uh, Nate let us borrow his aquarium passes, it's a pretty cool aquarium you guys have here, so it was great, except for spending a fortune on soup at the pier down there, <laughs> everyone's got the best soup, everyone wants you to try it, you can probably get a whole meal just sampling all the soups, but... it was good. We had a blast. Well, today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 25 in verse 14. That's the parable of the talents. Not sure if you caught this in the news like I did this past December, about six, seven months ago. A little boy named Bennett, five-year-old boy, just wanted to hang out with his dad, right? And so what do you do? He's going to watch some college football with his dad. His dad's teaching him all about it. He's asking questions. One day when they're watching, he sees a logo of a dragon. And he's like, Dad, what team is this? Oh, it's the University of Alabama and Birmingham. He goes, Dad, that's my favorite team. Look at that dragon. His dad's like, okay, cool. So he's telling them all about it. He's memorizing player names and everything. And, and all of a sudden, you know, a few weeks later, he says, Dad, we got, we got to go see a game. This is my favorite team ever. we got to go see a game. His you dad know? says, well, son, actually, the one team that you picked to like, this is, this, they're getting rid of their football program. In a week or two. This is the first major college football program since 1995 to get shut down. There were $20 million in the hole every year, highly subsidized by the university, and the university just said, We're done with this. We can't afford this anymore. So the kid's so bummed out, and he goes, So so it's a money problem, Dad? Yeah, it's, it's a $20 million money problem. <laughs> okay. Dad, I want to send them my entire allowance. <laughs> so he gets a crayon out, writes a a uh, little note saying, "Hey, I you know I want I want you guys to have a football team. Here's all my money," and sends a one dollar bill in the mail. And he's like, "Dad, do you think it's going to work?" I said, "Well, <laughs> we sure can try. We'll get, we'll give it a shot." And I don't know about you, but when I see when I see a big problem, sometimes sometimes that overwhelms me and I don't do anything. You know, as Christians, we see this world falling apart. We see persecution. We see the lost. We see You know, people just not caring about God and rebelling. And and sometimes we say, well, what what part can I play at all? What could I possibly do? But in this passage, we're going to see that every servant is needed. There are no insignificant laborers when the laborers are few. Every resource God gives us needs to be used for his kingdom. So we're going to learn this morning that as we choose to serve God in the little ways each day, we're actually, whether we know it or not, choosing to serve God in greater ways in the future. So the context for Matthew 25, a chapter earlier, we've got Jesus and the disciples. They walk by the temple. Disciples are really impressed. They start talking about it. Jesus uses it as, as an object lesson as well. Actually, not one stone's going to be left upon another. And they say, well, when, when's that going to happen? When's the end of the age going to happen? And Jesus begins to tell them, you know, the signs of the times and what's going on. But ultimately, he says it's unknowable. You're not going to know the exact time that the Son of Man is going to return. And so he doesn't just leave it like that. He doesn't leave them hanging like that. In Matthew 25, right before our parable, we've got the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And that parable stresses that there needs to be readiness. We need to be ready if we're, for the bridegroom's return. And then he brings us to this parable, and we learn what readiness really looks like. And it looks like serving the king while he's away. We've got to be busy about our father's business and then when he comes back, we're, we're going to be ready, even if it catches us off guard. If we're serving him, we'll be ready. So we're in Matthew chapter 25, verse 40, and we see right away that all of us have been given resources to use for God. Look at verse 14. For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. To the one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability... And immediately, he went on a journey. So Jesus starts by saying, the kingdom of heaven is like. So for kingdom-minded people like us, we know what God's expectations are. The kingdom of heaven is like this parable. And he says, there's a master who had his own servants. So the servants, the three servants we're going to look at today, they were the master's. There was no arguing that. They would all say, that's my master, and he would say, those are my servants. That, those would be the words that would come out of their mouth, but their actions would soon tell whether or not they were true and faithful servants or just servants by name, just nominal servants. This master delivers his goods to them. So they received talents to invest. They received money that they could use to, you know, to multiply for the master. Now, talent is, it's, it's not like a bear on a unicycle juggling a little bit. Pretty cool. You should see that YouTube video, actually. We can check it out. I have a video. Is it cute? Of it? No, it's not. There's no video. Um, don't think about talents like that. Don't think about that. That's, that's our usage of the word. A talent was a unit of, of measurement, a weight that you would put on a scale. And so there was a talent of gold, a talent of silver. Most people think that this is referencing a talent of gold. And so a talent of gold would be about 6,000 denarii. One denarii was a day's wages for a common laborer. So one, de- one talent would end up being 20 years worth of wages, two talents, 40 years, five talents, 100 years worth of wages. So all of them got a significant amount of money to use and invest in business. So by application, while well, we don't have that necessarily, we do have resources that God has given us. We've got natural giftings and spiritual gifts that we have. So in the natural category, yeah, we've, we've got money, just like in this parable. All of us will be held accountable to how we spend money. None of us like that commercial on TV that compares our coffee drinking habits to supporting a kid and out of poverty. You're like, come on, man. Why you got to go there? You know, why you got to talk about, talk about that addiction? Um, we don't, we don't like that, but we're going to be held accountable to how we used our money. That's going to be something that we've, we've received it from the Lord. What are we doing with it? We've all got time. That's another natural gift the Lord's given us. All of us have a few more moments, right? None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. It seems like we're going to make it through the service. But how are we using our time for the Lord? It goes quick, as we know. Time goes quick. And we do have abilities like talents, uh, things that we can do. So my dad, he's a man's man. He can, he can build a house from the ground up. He's done it many times. The plumbing wouldn't have been certified, but he gets it done. So that's pretty cool. You can build a house. I can build a home page on a computer. I can build a website, you know, a little home page. Much different. I have less scars on my hands, much less manly. Uh, But nonetheless, we both have different abilities and talents. How can we use them for the Lord? My dad does it. My dad's helped out the church construction teams. He's done missions, things like that. He's helped out those that are in need. He's used his abilities for the Lord. And I've tried to do similar things in building websites for ministries and and stuff. So we all have different things we can do. We've got creativity, you know, the things we can come up with. We've got our health, our friends, and our family. These are all natural things that even those that don't put their trust in Jesus have. The natural man can have all of these things. But then we've got spiritual gifts. Right? We've got spiritual blessings, every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So We've got a lot to be grateful for. Plus, as we are about to do a spiritual work for God, he gives us spiritual resources, spiritual gifts. He equips us in ways that the natural man is not equipped to serve him because it's a spiritual work that we're going to be doing. And so what I think is healthy is for us to do an inventory. Maybe sometime today you can pause and just say, I'm just going to really think about what has God given me naturally. And what has God given me spiritually? And just put it all on the table and take a moment and thank God for it. And we'll realize that we probably weren't as grateful as we should have been as we're looking at all we have. We'll probably complain a little bit less as we think about all we have in comparison to the world. But then it can kind of excite you. You think, man, what did, what did Jesus do with a couple of loaves and some fish? And what was he able to do there? And I've, I've got more than that. What could Jesus do with the resources he's already given me. So do an inventory, see what the Lord will do. This master distributed his resources according to his own ability, meaning when he gave the guy five talents, it's because he he trusted him a bit. That, That man had proven himself. And the one who received one talent, well, he wasn't as trustworthy, but he still took a risk on that person. To give them something, to prove themselves, to see—this was probably somebody who said, I, "I can do it. Just give me a shot. Let me let me try and work for you." And and he gave him a shot. And so he gave each to his own ability. And we get hung up on comparing ourselves and saying, "Well, if I had that person's gift, then I could really be used by the Lord." But we should be grateful when we're not given more than we can actually handle. Right? We can only handle so much. And so I remember one time, September 11th, I was living in New York City. This is 2001, and I woke up, and there's smoke in the skies, and I ended up having to run from both of the towers. Uh, ran from the first one, was helping the firemen out, and then had to run from the second one, and then and was helping out more. And, and the Lord saved my life. He, he saved my life on that day, despite me turning my back on God in college. That was how he drew me back to himself. And so he did that, and then all of a sudden, Calvary Chapel, Old Bridge shows up in the city and starts doing ministry. It's a few days later, and 500 people are gathered in a circle as somebody singing Amazing Grace. And I'm just sitting there just trying to process everything. And I just met that Pastor Lloyd Poley that day, the senior pastor of the church that was there. He's commanding this crowd of 500 people. And then he goes, I want you guys to hear a story of what God can do. I'm going to have Andy Dean come up here and share in front of all of you. What? Why does this guy have the same name as me? What? I'm like, I, what Lloyd didn't know was that Two to three weeks earlier at New York University in my speech class, right in front of a camera. I just found the videotape last week when I was in New Jersey. I took my note cards in the air and I threw them in the air and said, I can't do this, right in the middle of my speech, and walked out of the class and hadn't been back in two weeks. I was that was in front of like 18 people. There's no way. So I walk up to Lloyd and he's smiling at me. I go, actually, I can't do that. He just looks at me because he's "He's not going to be embarrassed with some punk kid. He goes, do it. <laughs> Very pastoral of him. Yeah, it was a spiritual gift. Yeah, Barnabas. And so, so I stand up there, same thing starts happening. My heart's all anxious. My knees are shaking. I'm starting to stutter and mumble my words out, little making up fake words like it's a disaster. Two sentences in, I'm just about to give up again. And all of a sudden, whew, just a warmth came over me. And I felt like the Holy Spirit, you know, came upon me and, and gave me strength. And I preached my first sermon ever on the power of prayer and didn't prepare for it at all. And the Lord, the Lord spoke and I was fine. I was like, what was that? Well, you know, we always think like, oh, if I could have that person's abilities, if I could have that person's gifts. And... But it's a kindness of God to give us, you know, what matches with the abilities he's given us. Not to give us any more than that. We can't be comparing ourselves Or we'll be overwhelmed, we'll be terrified in those moments. And so we can't get hung up on comparing uh, what we have and others don't. Peter says, if anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability with which God supplies. God's the one that gives us ability. We don't drum it up. We don't stir it up. We don't develop it. God gives it. And so you look around this room and you you start comparing yourself and you say, well, that's great. But as I look around this room, I'm just a one-talent kind of guy. You know those five talent people, they've got all their teeth, their breath never smells, they're good-looking. That's not me. That's not me at all. You know, I'm just a one talent. Wait a second. One talent was a huge sum of money. If you think out of the whole church and even if you're right, out of the whole church, if you do your inventory today and you're like, "Man, that's not, I just got nothing. I have not. You still have enough to minister in the way that God wants you to minister. You still have every single resource that is needed. To love your neighbors, people that Pastor Nate, Pastor Andrew will never meet. People, and Pastor Nate, Pastor Andrew, to be honest, while they have a, a heart for the lost, they don't love your family that is lost as much as you do. That's just, that's just human. They don't even know their names. They never even met them. But you cry about those people. You love those people. To you, it's the most, the most precious humans on this planet, and you can't bear to, to have them be apart from Christ forever. And so you've got everything you need. To minister to those people. So it's not how much you've been given, it's what you do with what you've been given. We're not all given the same thing, but we are all given something, and that's what we're required to look at. So you're the one God created for the work that He has for you, and it's a different work than for everybody else. So the master goes away on a journey. He goes to a far country, it says, and so there's some time. This isn't a negative kind of a delay we see in the passage. Every day the master is gone. The servants are multiplying a bit more and earning a bit more for their master. And we see in verse 16 that life is the chance that we have to use the resources that God has given us. Look at verse 16. He who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. He who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So we see they went and traded. There's a bit of effort and risk involved. Two of them doubled the money, 100% gains, right? That, if anyone tells you they can double your retirement account, just run, they probably also have a gun, okay? Like they're, they're trying to steal your money from you. For, for these two, this was a calculated risk, right? They knew if we lend to this farmer, then this is, seems like they'll be able to give back this amount. And it was a calculated risk. They were shrewd businessmen, and they started working right away. They knew they had to multiply their master's money. What do we do when we see the person who digs a hole and buries The money, if you're like me, immediately we start to judge that person in our parable, don't we? Be careful, it's a trap. I'm just saying, parables are traps because we've got blind spots, we've got hardened hearts when we don't even think we have hardened hearts, we compartmentalize things, and we're not always able to judge ourselves, right? When we lie, it's a white lie. When we steal, we borrow, right? We always think highly of ourselves. The Lord knows just how depraved we really are. And so he'll use a parable and get the audience to judge the parable, and then all of a sudden it just kind of comes right back around like a boomerang, we're like, wait, but that's how I act. This is what happened to King David, right? There's a parable in the Old Testament after he you know, stole, Uriah, uh, stole Bathsheba and killed Uriah and sinned and tried the whole, to hide the whole thing. What happens? All of a sudden, months later, Nathan shows up and says, King, I've got a situation, there's one guy, they've got one lamb. It's their pet. They love it. The kids all named it. It's their family lamb. The neighbor's got a thousand lambs. He had a visitor come, and instead of ruining his business of lambs, he went and stole the one lamb, killed it, ate it with the, with the neighbor. What should be done with him? And David, with, his, with anger in his heart, says, that man should die. And then Nathan says, you are that man. See, David was too far gone, in a sense, to judge his own heart. He was taken into the grave, but God loved him too much, and so he gave him a parable, and he judged a hypothetical situation, and then it came right back to him. And so we look at this man who buried the talent, and we think, "Tsk, tisk, tisk." What are you doing?" And then we remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, "You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand." You know, we've got the gospel. We don't take the gospel and hide it. And yet there are times when we feel the Holy Spirit prompting us to speak to somebody, to share our faith. We feel a burden for people, and we don't do anything with it. And there are times where, for a bunch of reasons, we take the gospel and put it under a basket. That same September 11th, I had many opportunities to to share my faith. And there was at least 10, 12 times that as I was done working with a particular fireman, that there was a parting that was going to happen. And I felt the prompting of the Holy Spirit to say, say, God bless you to this person. Say, how could I pray for you? And because the night before I was out drinking, every single one of those times I said, good luck to the person. And every time I felt a prompting from the Holy Spirit, right? And what does does luck have to do? with The towers just crushed a bunch of their friends. There's no luck involved. But to bring God into a situation like that could have actually been helpful and could have been good ministry. And I I buried it every single time, and that was, that was a painful thing as I began to get right with the Lord to realize what had happened. But what did I, I had no strength from the Lord being backslidden at that moment. You know, we've got the gospel. We've got to get it out. As cool and, and you know, hipster and happy as this world thinks they are, we're like, we don't need God, You're, you know, you, it's so antiquated. There's a lot of pain out there, and people need the gospel. People need to know that they're loved. Paul told the Romans... In Romans 12, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith or ministry, let us use it in our ministry. We, we've got to use the gifts that God gives us. God gives us natural gifts, spiritual gifts, and we need to get them off the shelf, dust them off, right? And, and use them. We want to stay usable for the Lord. And we think, normally we default to, well, that means official church ministry. If I sign up, I heard there's a need in the children's or the ushers, and there is, and, that, and that, is a, that is a good way to use our time. But more often than not, ministry comes to us personally, and personal ministry is some of the most satisfying ministry you can ever be a part of, is people that you know that nobody else in the church knows, and you know a need, and you can meet it. We've got to use the gifts that God has given us. And one day, our response to the resources God has has given us, how do we use them, is going to be reviewed. Look at verse 19. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to me five talents. Look, I've gained five more talents besides them. So there's a settling of accounts. There's a day of accountability, a reckoning that happens. And they didn't know when it was going to happen. And all of a sudden, the master showed up. And they had to get the books in order and, and present to him. The servants had time and resources from the master. And now they were held accountable to how they used that time and those resources. And this one servant who had five talents and now had five more. We don't know if he was nervous, even though he had great gains or what was expected. But he was able to tell his master, I have gained. I have gained five more. Now, for the master, that's exactly what was required. He was to gain more money for the master. But for the spiritual purpose of this parable, believe me, God doesn't care about money, all right? The dollar bill didn't exist in Jesus' day, all right? Like, that money is a tool for the kingdom or it becomes an obsession for us. But this parable is not about, um, you know, the church giving you some money and then you multiply the money and then you give the money back to the church. It's just not, that's not the point of it. What does God care about? Money? No, God cares about souls, Jesus sat outside of Jerusalem and he he wept when he saw Jerusalem because this is the city that rejected prophet after prophet. They would not receive him. God God weeps over souls that are lost, not dollar bills that, you know, blow out of our hand down the drain. Thinking of a coin that goes down the drain, actually, not a dollar bill. Makes sense, but so were you. Listen, we, we want to be able to say to God one day, I have gained souls for the kingdom. You know Those souls that were lost, that you were weeping over, they're here. They're here. I, I shared with them. I built up. Somebody planted the seed. I watered. And God is the only one that, that converts. God is the only one that can do that. But he wants to partner with us. He desires to partner with us. And by God's grace and in his strength, we get to serve the Lord by sharing his love with a world that really needs it. So we don't want to get to heaven and say, it's just me. <laughs> Didn't really think about anyone. No, we want to be able to get to heaven and say, these people were a part of you know, of the journey as well. I, I help to, to point these people back to Christ. I have gained more souls is what I want you to think about when you think about this parable, not more money. And, and faithful servants, they're, they're going to receive a reward. Look at verse 21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I've gained two more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. So the servant with five extra talents looks at the master, wonders what the response is going to be, and he says, well done. You did it. You did well. Good and faithful servant. He receives a compliment. See, that servant treated the money like it was his own, like the profit would be his own as well, even though it was the master, even though he gladly gave it all back to the master. And that's what was required of him was faithfulness. Paul told the Corinthians that it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. That's, That's what we're judged by is faithfulness. This master was so loaded, even the hundred years worth of wages He said, these are a few things, is how he describes them. You were faithful with a few things. And the guy's like, 100 years worth of wages is a few things. And so often we think, you know, we either think that the whole world centers around us or we think that we're insignificant. What God is looking for is faithfulness. And he, he notices every little thing that we think is forgettable. All the stuff that we don't even care to journal about. You don't even want to post about it on social media. You don't even really want to tell your family about it because, oh, that that's not even really an interesting story. But how did you interact with people? All the small conversations throughout the day, all the little prayer requests that you tossed up, every little thing is remembered by God. And those who desire to be used for God's glory are going to be given the resources that they need to be used for his glory. And then as they receive those resources and use them for God's glory... They're now equipped to do even greater things in the future for the Lord. This person that had five talents and got five more, he's told that that's great. Those were a few things in comparison to the, the things I'm going to give you now. You're going to be ruler over many now. We don't know if that's going to work out right away. The next stage is, you know, is, is that going to happen right away for this servant? Now he's going to be given 10, 10 uh, you know, uh, what are they called? Talents of gold to be used. Is he going to be given more of that? Or is it the millennial kingdom for us that we're thinking, hey, if we're faithful here on earth, then we're going to rule over angels and serve in even greater ways during the millennial kingdom? We don't necessarily know how it works out. But if we're faithful in this life, we're going to be ruler over many. This servant enters into the joy of your Lord, it says. The joy of the Lord. So there's a feast, it seems like. The master is excited. He says, come on in. This is going to be great. He catches the vision. We get to enter into that joy. We get, to, we get to catch that. We, get, we begin to have the same passion that the Father has. As we serve him, we enjoy it. We had a, a student, a girl at our college that went on a short-term trip with us to Haiti, had a blast and decided, I want to go there full-time. She's leaving, I think, any day now to, be, to go there for a much longer missions trip in Haiti. I'm like, wow, that's cool. But I've been to Haiti. I was there three, three months after the earthquake with our youth group serving in Port-au-Prince. It is the hottest place on earth I think, at least where I've been, I, I, oh my goodness, there was no relief, There's no cold shower to take in the day, we were too far from, from the ocean, all day long you're just serving, thinking, it's really hot, Lord, <laughs> well wait, the sun will go down tonight, praise God, it didn't get any better, it's like the sun supercharges the ground and all night, is like the sun's underneath of us, what's <laughs> happening, so all night you're like, are you serious, it's not going to get better, and I'm up all night long, I'm just a little baby in my little AC at home, uh, all night long, and then at four in the morning, there's just this random spiritual break in the weather, where the Lord's grace comes upon the nation. And at four in the morning, for a few minutes, it felt cool. So I go to sleep, and three minutes later, the roosters woke up, and I realized it was the devil just messing with me. I'm like, come on, why would this girl go to Haiti full time when that's the experience I had for a week when I was there? Well, you know what? She caught the joy. She served the Lord and found such joy in his presence that was so full to her that she just did a lot less complaining than I did, and she just enjoys it. We get to catch the joy as we serve the Lord. We just begin to say, ah, who cares about being inconvenienced? Who cares about being uncomfortable? I get to, I get to represent the Lord. Now, what about this servant who didn't get five talents more but only got two more talents? Does he get rebuked and saying, come on, you couldn't keep up with this guy? What's the problem? What's the problem? Well, not at all. He receives the same exact compliment and praise and reward. Same, you look at it kind of carefully. There's got to be something there. He's got to say, and even though you did much less, it was still good. Nothing. It's exactly the same. Because for what he was given, it was the appropriate reward. The master knew that getting five would probably be impossible. But for what he was given, he could tell he worked hard. And so he gets the same exact reward and enters into the same joy as the other servant. I just want you to fast forward however many years in the future you think you're going to be in heaven, and just picture you're standing there at the Bema seat, you know, and, and Billy Graham's right next to you, and you're like, I got a good spot. He's right next to me. This is awesome. And you see a dump truck. You didn't even imagine there'd be trucks in heaven, but there's a dump truck just backing up right towards Billy Graham and just unloads all this gold, and he's got a straw sticking through it, just trying to breathe. And you're like, that's what I expected. That's what I expected. Life well lived, Billy. So you give him some space because it's kind of running over years and Dumb truck starts coming towards you, and you're like, well, that's a little overkill for a couple pennies. And you just get buried in gold. And you're sitting there as you're suffocating. <laughs> you're sitting there thinking, why did I get the same reward as Billy Graham? This doesn't make any sense. He's preached to millions of people. Millions of people might have been saved from him. I just had a tiny little neighborhood, and I was just in this remote place, and I don't, I don't get it. And you realize this parable, I don't know how I ended up way over there, this This parable teaches you that we're not judged based on quantity of converts, the the publicity in in our ministry, how big of a ministry opportunity it is. We are simply judged on faithfulness, and every person in this room could, if we are faithful, receive the same reward as Chuck Smith, as people that we hold in such high honor. And yeah, God may have given them a different type of a ministry because there was a different goal for their life, but the goal that we are measured by is the goal for our life and the faithfulness that we have to each day's opportunity. Each day we've got the opportunity, rerun our ministry, right? We've got those choices that we can make. Are we faithful? This servant receives the same exact reward and so can we. Any excuse for not using the resources that we have, it's going to fail. Look at verse 24. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. I knew you to be a hard man. What? No. If you're like me, you, you kind of look at this parable, and you're like, oh, no. That's describing God, isn't it? And God reaps where he doesn't sow. God, oh, man, God's really tough. You start thinking all this about it. You don't have to do that. This guy's lying about the master. The first two servants brought a good report about this master. He was more than fair. They they were blessed by his reaction to their work. This servant is wicked and lazy, and, and his report is a lie against the master. You don't have to compare this passage to what you think you know about the Father in heaven, but here's something that we should look at. The perception that this servant had dictated his efforts, his perception of God dictated his efforts. That's why it's so important to have a proper theology, to have good thoughts about God, recognizing his love for you. Not that he's an angry taskmaster up there like Pharaoh, but he's a loving father. Now this this servant thought that 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 his master was cruel. You're making me work this minimum wage job. I'm working my tail off and, and you get all the profit and you just kinda of start me over no raise. That's what's probably going to happen. Don't even trust me. You gave everyone else more talents than me and you know this is just not true. The master has proven that his goal was to give each servant an opportunity to prove their faithfulness, and then if they proved it, they would be rewarded with even more opportunities. And so he, the master was looking at that guy with one talent. He said, man, I, he really thinks he can handle it. You know, maybe, maybe I'll give him the talent, and he's going to multiply it, and one day, who knows, maybe he'll be the CEO of my company. Lord, you know, maybe I should just give him the benefit of the doubt. And he did. And the master took a risk on that one servant, and the risk didn't pay off. And this guy now is trying to throw it back on the master and saying the problem is all his. He says, I was afraid, and so I hate your talent. Well, fear isn't a good reason to not act. What does the Bible say for Christians when it comes to fear? Perfect love casts out fear. So I'm afraid of spiders. If there's a spider in this pulpit, I'm done. There's only three services today. I'm not coming back tonight if there's spiders in this place. You can finish the message. Put the recording on. But listen, if... If tomorrow night, if I'm back at home and my cute little three-and-a-half-year-old princess little girl that melts my heart, if she screams and I come into the room and there's some crazy spider dangling from the ceiling coming towards her, I've got to run, throw her like some superhero back towards my wife and just let it eat my face and distract <laughs> it, you know? And does that mean I'm not afraid of spiders? No, but now I'll be twice as afraid of spiders. But listen, why do, why do parents run back into burning buildings? It's, it's not to get the purse, right? It's to get the kids, You know, perfect love casts out all fear, and you can do more than you ever imagined when you have love in your heart. And so your goal is to have the same love in your heart for others that God has for them. And so I'll tell you where it starts. It starts by loving your family and your friends that you already care about. It starts by by making that love exponential, and then that will eventually overflow and bubble over to loving strangers in the same exact way. And then all of a sudden you'll walk up to a stranger, even you. You'll walk up to a stranger and share your faith with them if the Lord prompts you to because love casts out any fear of rejection. This guy just says, here, have what is yours. Kind of flicks the, the coin right back at the master. He didn't value the potential of one talent. Maybe he's offended he only got the one and everyone else was trusted more. You know, and often we, we don't value, you know, what we, what's right before us. And we think, well, I want to change the world, but we're not intentional about a conversation we have at the supermarket. You don't have to change the world. Jesus did that. Your goal is the people around you. You've got a sphere of influence. How are you going to love those people? This guy had an excuse, and it wasn't accepted. We see, we see his excuse rejected here in verse 26, but we also see another acceptable outcome that God said would have worked. Look at verse 26. His Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I would have received back my own with interest. So God rejects his excuse entirely, says, the problem isn't me. The problem is you are wicked and lazy. If you cared at all about me, you would have put put the money in the bank, and I could have at least got one town and a little coin, a little denarii or something, so I'd keep up with inflation. But your problem is that you're wicked. You just care about yourself. You're you're the God. You're the master, not, not me. When the master says, you knew that I, and kind of repeats the testimony about himself and describes himself in a real negative way, I don't think that's him confessing that this guy had it right the whole time. It could be, but I think he's saying, you know, you're being judged based on what you know about me. And if you thought I was a real tough boss, just think like I'm from Jersey, right? So think mafia. Mafia boss, if you think I'm the guy, you don't give, you don't him my talent, I'm going to cut your finger off, you know, forget about it. If you think that's who I am, does that mean you should be lazy? No, now you're motivated by fear. You still should have been serving me, so that's a lie, because if you thought I was that wicked, you still would have served me, or you at least would have ran away, but no, you're lazy, that's the problem, and so all the more reason to work if it's a tough, a tough guy. But he says this, the other acceptable outcome would have been depositing the money with the bankers. Now, what does that mean spiritually for us? I think it means that I think God is going to call us to leave our comfort zone and our convenience to either build up the church or reach the lost. But then there are times where we get afraid and we have weaknesses and we we let them dominate a little bit and we don't go out and do that ministry that we're maybe called to do. What, what can we do in those situations? Well, you can deposit your money with the bankers. You're afraid to, to share your faith, you know, in downtown Monterey. Well, then what do you do? You find the evangelist in the church and you say, you never have to buy another gospel track or Bible ever again. I'm going to be the one buying those for you. And you just keep on going out there and sharing the faith. And he can do it twice as effective now. Right? You find the missionary who's about to come off the field because they don't have enough resources. And you say, I was feeling a stirring to go, but if the Lord does that, great. But until then, I'm going to support you and you can be on the front lines. And you deposit your money with the bankers. And I think we're going to get to heaven one day. And this is conjecture. But I think we're going to, we're going to get there and God's going to say, oh, that's prompting. You felt I was calling you to share that, to go there. I would have provided, I would have answered if you did those things. I was, good. I was just as close to giving you the resources if you took that step of faith. You didn't, but you proved yourself that you loved me and you loved people because you deposited your money with the bankers when you supported that evangelist, you supported that ministry when you, when you came alongside that person. And so it's another acceptable outcome. I think God wants to give us the boldness to be used by him, and it's going it's to bring him glory as the foolish and unwise of us, you know, go out there and are used by him. People say, man, what? how are they being used by God? And they say, ah, they've been with Jesus. That's why they can speak like that. But if not, a true believer is still going to make sure ministry happens if they're not the ones doing it themselves. They're going to deposit their money with the bankers. I love how A.T. Pearson says it. Timid souls, unfit for bold and independent service on behalf of the kingdom, may link their incapacity to the capacity of others who will make their gifts and possessions of use to the master and his church, right? We're we're going to do something because the lost and dying world doesn't stop being lost and dying just because we only have good intentions, but we're not acting on them. Someone has to do it. And that person probably needs some resources. So if we're not going to use it for ourselves to launch us in the ministry, we've got to launch others in the ministry. Verse 28 shows us that we're really going to lose what we don't use anyway. So let's just use it for the Lord, right? I mean, the only security that we have is in Christ, is the things that we've invested into our heavenly bank account. There's no security here here on earth. We all know the stock market's, what, like four months away from crashing hard like in 2008. It's coming. We're all reading the articles. There's no security in money. There's no security in where you live. There's no security for our grandkids. In 50 years, half the world's going to be Muslim, right? Do you know what that means? Right? We're, gonna, we're, we're becoming the minority. Last week, we became the minority, you know, in, in America. Right? We're becoming the minority. There's no security in earthly things, only in heavenly things. All right? And so, look at verse 28. Therefore, the ta- take the talent from him, give it to him who has 10 talents, For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Take the talent from him and give it to the guy who's got 10? What's going on there? Well, you use it or you lose it. Good intentions are a good start. That's why they're good intentions instead of evil intentions, right? They're a good start, but then something actually has to happen or else good intentions don't help at all. I had good intentions for three years up until this past Christmas on how I can reach my family that's already told me they've heard enough of the gospel. Does that mean you give up on them just because they say, hey, easy there. Uh, Yeah, it's for you. Does that mean you say, okay, well, I guess that's it for you and your eternity. No, not if you love them. So you get creative, and so the Lord showed me three years ago something I could do, and I said, all right, I'm going to pick five, these five that I care about the most, and every Christmas I'm going to mail them a book about the Lord, like a C.S. Lewis mere Christianity book or a Tim Keller book on marriage, something that's so saturated with Christ they could read the book and be converted right there. Well, then you're like, yeah, well, that might work for your family. My family's going to just toss it right out as soon as I get it and be like, I can't believe him. Ah, here's the secret, right? You also include a $100 gift card. Amazon.com, right? you got to work with their greed, right? They're not born again. They're not going to walk in the spirit. They're just walking in the flesh. They want money, right? So you work with it. So email them the book, and right when they're about to toss it, they're like, well, that was generous. And they write your little note back saying, hey, thanks, got that stuff, thanks. And you're like, oh, well, maybe they're not going to read this year. Just think about th- if the Lord carries 30 years from now, statistically, I bet you they're going to read one book. Between the Holy Spirit giving us wisdom and discernment and their lives falling apart and needing God, that's what they need, the one thing. Do you think there's any chance of an alignment there where the book is exactly what they need at that moment? Over 30 years, there probably is. They're not guaranteed 30 years, but that's what gets me excited is I think this is a long-term goal. Could, I thought about that for three years. That didn't save anybody. But all of a sudden, I had a horrible thought. in three years? People can die in three years? And it was two days before Christmas. Thank goodness for Amazon Prime. And I got it out this past December for the first time. Otherwise, it would have just all stayed in my head and not saved anybody. And, uh, and, and they've read them. They've, some of them have read the books already. little children's Bible for my little niece, and they're reading it to her every night. I'm like, that's huge. It's a Bible all about Jesus. That's great. So you, you lose what you don't use. But if you serve the Lord, God will add to your resources, add to your reward, either now or in the millennial kingdom or in heaven. We don't know how that works out, but it's a, it's a reap what you sow kind of a principle. Jesus leaves all of a sudden the parable mode and immediately just drops a bomb here. And, and, and this master can't cast somebody into hell. What's going on here? The audience just probably step back and like, whoa, what are you talking about? The servant who buried the talent gets thrown into hell? And, and it's like Jesus leaves the parable and gets real with everybody, gets serious, and tells everyone what's on the line here. A servant so selfish that he's just gonna bury the talent, You can't serve the master if all the resources are in a hole, he's just serving himself, a servant who is this selfish isn't a true servant, and he's going to go to hell. It wasn't his failure to invest that condemned him. It was that his lack of good works showed a lack of saving faith. James chapter 2, right? We're not, none of us are, you guys are equipped here in a good church. None of you are going to get to heaven and be like, well, God, here's what I've done for you. When you say stuff like that in heaven, the angels are like, oh, I'm out of here. <laughs> you know, it's, watch out for the trap door. You know, it's, it's just... You guys, it's a good church here. You guys know that you don't get to heaven based on good works. You never start a sentence when someone says, how's your relationship with God? Or how do you know you're going to heaven with, I've done anything. It's all what Christ has done. But if Christ has done something in our lives, then something will probably change in our lives. There's going to be some fruit most likely visible to others. There's going to be some internal change, external change. Some good works are going to show that there's been a spiritual change. It's a big deal to have the light turned on from darkness out of darkness into marvelous light. It's a big deal from going to be completely natural to having a direct connection to Jesus. That's a big deal. And we all know people, and it breaks our hearts, that, that claim to be Christians and just live a wild life apart from God in rebellion, saying, I'm a Christian. And those are, those are scary situations, we know. So Jesus shows us here. This is a wake-up call for how much people's lives matter to God, that Jesus would just get real with people all of a sudden and start talking about hell. And we get to pause and say, am I a faithful servant or an unprofitable one? Do I I have more things in the category of good intentions or in the doer of the word category? And every little bit helps. Our ultimate judgment's already been settled. Jesus did that on the cross. Our sin has already been paid for. We don't sit here and worry after a, a tough sermon and say, oh man, am I going to heaven? If we put our faith in Jesus and repented of our sins, we're not expected to be perfect we're expected to be sincere, to sincerely head in the direction of Christ. And we're going to stumble bloody all the way up towards, towards heaven as the Lord brings us there, right? But you know what? We, we see how much lives matter to God, that he's going to be the one that, that gets this done. So this is a wake-up call that every little bit can matter, that God wants. He's given us the resources. He expects them to be used. Let me just tell you how the University of Alabama story finished up. This little boy sends his $1 bill and letter, and they get it, and they're exhausted, you know, their staff, the athletic department gets it. The assistant athletic director, Reed Adair, says, man, we needed we needed some encouragement. They framed the dollar bill and the letter on the wall. They mail back a jersey, a signed football, all this gear, and they sent a letter back to Bennett that said, and he, when he read this, he was blown away, he said, you're our number one fan. He goes, dad, I'm the number one fan. You're not even the number one fan. I'm the, You've been watching for years, and I'm the number one fan. And, he was blown away by it, the compliment, you know, that he got from them. He was so excited. And you know what happened just a month ago, just June 1st, is that there was an announcement that, I, don't, I, don't, I can't say that this is what inspired the whole thing, but this is the only news article about the whole thing that I saw in December. But local businessmen and everyone started seeing all the focus on this football team that never got this much focus nationally. They realized it was good for the community, and they pledged $30 million to the university to keep the football program going. But guess who gave the first buck? Little five-year-old Bennett. Now, you're sitting there thinking, well, that's sweet and that's cute, but what's $1 compared to $30 million? What what does that really matter? Well, we're not talking about dollars when we're in the church here, are we? What we're talking about is when we say, "Well, well, what's one soul compared to 30 million souls? Well, then that changes everything, doesn't it? Because I'll tell you what, I've got a beautiful three-and-a-half-year-old girl, little one-and-a-half-year-old boy, and my, own, my main goal in life, I'll tell you my little secret, my main goal in life is no matter what, I want to give those kids every opportunity to get to heaven and choose Jesus. That's my, own, that's my main goal. I'll quit my job. Don't tell them. I'll quit in a second if it gets in the way of me being a good husband or being a, being a good dad. My only goal. What, what, what point of living? What's the point of living, right? If, if I do all these things for the Lord, and then my little, my little precious girl isn't with Christ, what's the point right so what let's just let's just when i get hypothetical like this i almost cry even though it's hypothetical but little abigail 20 years from now walks away from the lord she finds herself in monterey backslidden living a horrible life breaking daddy's heart and one of you comes alongside her and gets her back focused on jesus who, who am i going to be most grateful to besides christ in the whole world i'll never forget your name if i hear that story I'll never stop thanking God for interceding if I hear that story, right? And that's just one father's love for a, a little girl. Not even my wife was the same love and the grandparents and everyone else. Think about all the love that is uh, that is focused on just one soul. Just one soul. We call it just one. There's nothing little, there's nothing few when it comes to serving the Lord. Not at all. And I want you to think about this boy getting a letter saying you're our number one fan and just pause for a moment and imagine when you're standing before the Father and he's got a love multiplied by zillions of times for one person and then for the whole world. And you get to say to him one day, I, I have gained five more also, two more also, one more also. I, don't, I, don't, I can't think of anyone that I brought to the Lord, but I, I sure gave this evangelist and missionary a lot of money and I think, I think they were being used by you. And he looks at you with tears in your eyes and says, well done, good and faithful servant. Why? Because there's at least one more kid in heaven that he loves. What, what, we can catch that joy today. We can catch that joy. We don't have to bury our talents. We can invest our life. We can take gospel risks. But it's, it sure is a supernatural thing, right? In the natural, we just have good intentions. So we've got to ask God to help us. So, so Father, would you help us? You've already inspired us because you allowed your own son to die on the cross for our sins, to show us what a great cost it was. We weren't redeemed with corruptible corruptible things like silver and gold, but by the precious blood of Jesus. Lord, and you, you said you're willing that none should perish, but all should repent and come to eternal life. You tell us the death of the wicked brings you no pleasure. And Lord, you capture all of our tears in a bottle. So Lord, we know you intimately love your people, your creation. And you want to adopt them into your family so you can shower them with love. And so, Lord, you have already inspired us, but would you also help us, Lord? Would you also give us the grace to overcome our inconveniences, our uncomfortableness, and to step out of those things and take a step of faith and reach out to the lost or to build up the church so the church can do what the church was meant to do by being a light to this world? Lord, we know that's your heart. It represents your heart. And if we ask these things in your name, we know they're matched up to your will. And so I guess what we're asking is that we would remember you and your plan more often. Because the divine appointments don't just happen once or twice a year when we're in this kind of a mindset. They can happen weekly. And we can just realize the Holy Spirit is right there with us as you, Father, are drawing people to yourself. The Holy Spirit is convicting them. And we get to tell them about Jesus. Lord, help us to catch this joy, to catch this vision, just to partner with our, our weeping Father in heaven to reach those that you love. Give us that heart, Lord, in Jesus' name.